David, thank you for leading us in prayer. So thank you for reading for us. Please do make sure you've got sight of a Bible. Romans 3 would be an especially useful place to have open. And let me just lead us again in a short prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray now that your word would indeed be sweeter to us than honey, more precious than much pure gold, as we see Jesus and our need of him more clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, on more than one occasion, I've had someone come up to me when I've been dressed quite smartly and say, what do you call Tom Nash in a suit? Maybe some of the younger ones can guess. What do you call Tom Nash in a suit? Answer, the accused. Apparently, it's a joke that never gets old. But this morning, it's as if we're all dressed up for court. The whole passage today is like a scene out of suits or a few good men. We're in a law court. But rather than watching on from the comfort of our sofa, we find ourselves standing in the dock. And by the end of our passage, we'll see what our defense is. Here's a spoiler alert. We have none. Now, if you've been listening in over the last few weeks, either in person or online, we may well be thinking, Tom, not another sermon on sin and judgment. I I got the big idea last week. I mean, come on, do we really need it? Well, Paul seems to think so. He could have said, we're all under sin and left it at that. But he wants to ram this home to the Romans. You see, without understanding this, I'll never be able to understand myself, not properly. We don't need to go on a gap year to find ourselves or travel the world. No, we just need to read Romans. Without grasping this, we'll never truly understand humanity. Romans 3 makes sense of the world. And without accepting these truths before us this morning, Christianity will never make any sense at all. If you're just listening in as an interested observer, you really do need to see and be absolutely convinced there is nothing you can do to save yourself or add to your salvation. We bring nothing to the table. No, we are utterly, completely, devastatingly guilty. So actually, far from Paul flogging a dead horse, it is essential, it's vital we understand, accept, believe, and respond rightly to the truth of this passage and let the gravity of our situation sink in. And the first thing we see, the first thing Paul reminds us of, is the charge. You might see it there on the outline, the charge. Verse 9. What then? Are are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, it's clear we've reached the summary here. It's a conclusion. Paul's been tightening the net, and now he ties it off. Paul's already charged both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, are under sin. Do you remember from chapter 1, verses 18 through to 32, he outlines the whole world has rejected God. Oh, We've exchanged the glory of God for mere idols. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. But then in chapter 2, even those who see sin as awful, who themselves aren't as bad as others, well, they're included too. In fact, even the Jews with their genuine privileges, they're included too. And so here is the essence of the charge. 
all are under sin. Not just infected, impacted, or affected by sin, but under sin. We're under the rule, the power, the dominion, the sway of sin. Sin isn't just mistakes we make. It is a fundamental opposition to God. And Paul goes on to unpack this charge in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So often in the Bible, the positive is clarified and reinforced by the negative. All are under sin, and so no one, not a single person, except Jesus obviously, is righteous. And Paul bases his argument on Scripture. There's a a whole string of Old Testament quotes here, and it reminds us this is God's charge ultimately, not just Paul's charge. Once again, we see the same progression as chapter 1. No understanding, no seeking, so turning aside. It's always been like this. Paul refers to Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 and Psalm 14 here. And interestingly, Paul's argument about sin finds its basis, its final authority, not in observational theory, but in the Bible. The most emphatic way to prove something isn't empiricism or scientism, but God's word, rightly understood. But what does Paul mean when he says no one does good? What about policemen, firefighters? Uh, The single mum valiantly struggling to make ends meet. Does Paul really mean no one does good? Well, I want us to move just for a moment from the law court to a ship. Uh, I want us all to imagine, all ages, ages, uh, we're just going to picture a ship. And as we look on, we see all sorts of people on this ship, all ages and backgrounds, Uh, Men and women, people from loads of different countries. And uh, we look and they're all getting on with different tasks. Uh, Some are scrubbing the deck, uh, others are setting the sails, uh, some are are cooking lunch or supper. And as we look round, well, we spot someone pickpocketing, others are fighting, brawling in the corner. Now, at one level, we might think, well, those getting on with productive tasks, useful tasks, they're better than those who are getting up to no good. And at one level, that's true. But Romans 3 gives us a broader view. As we look up, we see the skull and crossbones flying at the top of the mast. We realise they're all pirates. Uh, Not the romanticised fun pirates of Pirates of the Caribbean pirates. No, uh, these are men and women in open defiance of the king. It's like they're all on the uh, MMS sin, My Majesty's Ship all serving under the flag of self-sufficiency, independence, autonomy, and ultimately rebellion. Uh, So the king's armada approaches. It's right the king comes to wipe out his enemies. It doesn't really matter now, does it, whether they were scrubbing the deck well or shirking their duties. Everything they were doing was under the banner of rebellion. No one naturally seeks God. By nature, we want nothing to do with him. And that's what Paul means when he says no one does good. 
It's what theologians call total depravity. And not saying we're as bad as we possibly can be, just that every part of us is affected. It's depravity in extent, not degree. Uh, like one of those lawn bowls. People still watch lawn bowls nowadays. You know the kind I mean. We have an inbuilt lean, a bias, always towards self and away from God. And that bias affects every fibre of our being. Isn't it so countercultural? Isn't this the exact opposite to the world's view, the, the modern secularist view? It's essentially, I think, the Disney approach to life. And basically, we're all good, except for some out-and-out baddies, but they're quite rare. And if we dream big enough, we can do whatever we set our minds to do. Or for those of a certain vintage, we all know the lyrics. You've got to search for the hero inside yourself. Search for the secrets you hide. You've got to search for the hero inside yourself until you find the key to your life. But Romans says, Paul says, God says, if we search deep inside ourselves, we won't find a hero or the key to our lives, but a heart implacably opposed to God. Now, just before we move on, it's worth pointing out at worthless, you see down in verse 12. Worthless doesn't mean God doesn't care for us. It's not as if we're worth nothing to God. No, Paul's building to the greatest demonstration of love towards humanity. So it's more the idea of useless. We have failed to be to do the one thing we were created to do, to love and worship and glorify God. We were created by God, for God, and to a person we fail to be what we were meant to be. We're all under sin. None of us are righteous. But how can we know this is the case? And so next we move to the evidence. Secondly, the evidence. Uh, Who we are at the core of our being is someone opposed to God, but it shows. It leaks from our lips and then spreads. Turgenev, the Russian poet, captures it well when he says, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Here's where the the pirate ship illustration breaks down a bit. It's not like we're going about always doing good things, but rejecting God and so they're not genuinely good deeds. We're not some saintly pirate who just happens to be on the wrong team. Now, our rebellion against God shows in what we say and how we live. Just look with me again to verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Sin seeps out. First of all, it's seen in our speech. Once again, Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. This time it's Psalms 5, 140 and 10. And it's interesting, isn't it? How does sin first come into the world? Through speech. Did God actually say? And speech is such an indicator of our heart. Out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whether it's open hostility or the great British pastime of passive-aggressive comments, our mouths give us away. And talking about open graves shows us just how deadly deceitful tongues can be. Uh, Just think, children, grown-ups, whether you have gone a whole 
week, even a whole day, without flattery, exaggeration, little white lies, or just massaging the truth? Or when did we last use words to belittle, tear down, oppress, wound, or hurt others? We just can't do it. Our sin keeps showing. And this would have made uncomfortable reading for the Jews. These quotations here are in the first instance about Israel's enemies, but now they're turned on them. Who are the enemies of God? Well, they look in the mirror and they see themselves here in Romans 3. But Paul's point throughout this section is if even the Jews are included, well, of course, the Gentiles, the nations are included too. And it's not just our lips that give us away. Sin affects every part of us, lip and life. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul now points us back to Isaiah 59 and then rounds off with Psalm 36, underlining how sin affects every part of our lives. It's not that I'm a sinner because I sin, although that is true, but rather I sin because I'm a sinner. The heart problem works its way out in speech and actions. Again, it's not a case of every single one of us actually shedding blood, but even a cursory glance at human history shows us our propensity for violence. Those who know the world best trust it least. Now, anyone want to guess what the annual global military expenditure was last year? Any, any ages, annual global military expenditure, just one year, 2019. Okay, I want to come up with a figure. This doesn't include personal spend, uh, expenditure on guns and knives and nunchucks and so on. $1,917 billion. Uh, just shy of $2 trillion. If you're interested, about a third of it was spent by the USA alone. But it is clear, isn't it, how swift we are to shed blood. We do not know the way of peace. And why? Well, verse 18, there is no fear of God before our eyes. No, no fear of God takes us back to where we began. We fail to see God as God. We fail to honor him as we should. And so all we're left with is the verdict. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Our mouths pour forth death and deception, poison and profanity, but now they're stopped. In verse 19, again, the logic is if the Jews don't have a leg to stand on, if even they are facing God's just judgment then the whole world's got no hope at all. We're all on the hook. The only sensible thing you can do is shut your mouth. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you are caught absolutely red-handed? You are caught bang to rights. Your hand is literally in the cookie jar. The text messages are left on the phone. Or I remember finding one of our children midway through eating a block of chocolate 
uh, kind of still in their hands, chocolate smeared round their face. There is simply no denying it. There's nothing you can say. This is uh, like the opposite of the presidential debate. Anyone watch the first debate? Neither of them could stop talking. Constant bickering and accusations and justifications and excuses. But put Trump or Biden before God and they won't be able to utter a single word. Speechless. And we're in the same boat. Three times in verses 19 and 20, Paul uses the word all, all mouths silenced, all the world accountable to God, all flesh cannot be justified. But we live in a culture where there's always an excuse. It's because my parents didn't hug me enough. It's because I was provoked. It's because of coronavirus or the lockdown. That what do celebs caught in a scandal almost always say? It wasn't me. I don't recognize the person who did that. I'm not like that anymore. I've grown as a person since then. Always an excuse. Always a distancing. Now, I don't want to minimize genuinely tough circumstances, and especially those who find themselves the victims of oppression and injustice. They need love and support. But before God, none of us have an excuse for our sin. Sinners can still be sufferers, and sufferers are still sinners. Whatever our background, whatever the circumstances, however we've been treated, we stand speechless before God. I and I alone am responsible, guilty, and rightly condemned for my rebellion against God. No mitigating circumstances. But actually, it's it's more corporate than that, isn't it? Paul works on the individual level, not one, and also the corporate level, all. But it does beg the question, though, well, what's the point of the law? Certainly it takes up a large chunk of our Bibles. Was it that plan A went wrong and then the gospel is somehow plan B? Well, no. Where does Paul end in verse 20? Some of us uh, were reading J.C. Ryle last Sunday evening, and here's what he says about the role of the law. Never does a person see any beauty in Christ as a saviour until they discover they are a lost and ruined sinner. Or just listen to Spurgeon. We'll be listening to Spurgeon in a, a week or so's time. I do not believe any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. If they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive till the law has slain him. If you'll indulge me, let me have one more quote. Here's John Stott. We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. Isn't it what Paul is saying in verse 20? Uh, The law is like one of those UV lights at a crime scene. We can imagine CSI, Tunbridge Wells. Uh, The UV light exposes things, grotty things. It reveals what's there, the true state. But it can't clean up a crime scene, can it? 
Telling people Jesus saves is often a vacuous statement. He saves from what? He saves for what? How does he save? Why do I even need saving? Pretty sure I don't. The law exposes us. It shows us our sin. There's a story about President Coolidge attending church one Sunday while Mrs. Coolidge remains at the White House. Uh, On his return, anxious she she might have missed something significant, the First Lady asks her husband about the preacher's sermon topic. He spoke about sin, the President says. What did he say? Mrs. Coolidge inquires. He was against it. If that is the sum total of what we hear today then I failed. Because ultimately this is good news. Firstly, it reveals God's righteousness, at least in part. God's wrath at humanity's unrighteousness is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. We need to know this. We're seeing something of God's righteousness here, though not the whole picture. Secondly, This is wonderfully liberating. We don't have to justify ourselves by what we do. We can't. We don't have to be defensive when people point out our sin. Uh, We're far worse than they know. No one can say a worse thing about us than God already has, and that is liberating. Paul wants us to give up on trying to prove our worth before God. And instead, we just receive by faith what we can never earn, God's free gift of righteousness. But we need to wait till chapter 3, verse 21, until we get the joy of unpacking that. I don't have to prove myself to God. We don't have to prove ourselves to one another. There is nothing you can think of me or say to me which is worse than reality. That is truly liberating if we come to Christ. So as we close, let's... Uh, Just zoom out and and recap the whole courtroom scene again. When is the trial date? Can we see verse 20? It's the future, isn't it? Paul uses the future tense. God's present wrath now is in part a warning for the wrath to come. In his mercy, there's still time to repent, to turn back. Maybe, Maybe we know we still need to do that today. Who are the defendants? All of humanity, the whole world, all of us standing in the dock. Who's the victim, the offended party? It's God, we've all rebelled against him. But then who is the judge? It's also God. Again, verse 20, do you see it's in his sight? That's what counts. Not our own view of ourselves or each other, but his view of us. The fear of God may not be before our eyes, verse 18, but we're always in his sight. We've already looked at the charge this morning. All are under sin. Who's the prosecution lawyer in the sharp suit? There is the law justly condemning us. Whether it's our conscience or the Old Testament law, we're all left without excuse. Our defense, we have none. No one has anything to say. So the verdict is guilty. It has to be guilty. And the sentence sentence is God's wrath. We have a future problem, a universal problem, a God-centered problem, an unrighteous heart and mind problem, a deserved problem, an inescapable problem, a terrifying problem. God's just wrath. 
but it makes the gospel all the sweeter. Like water on a parched tongue or shade under, from the blazing sun in the desert. I don't want to steal the thunder from 3 verse 21, but just listen to these words with fresh wonder and appreciation. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is staggeringly good news. The news we so desperately need to hear. Good news to save us, transform us, and thrust us out into the world to make it known. Seeing sin as this pervasive and destructive drives us to Christ. It has to. Our only hope and strength is in him. Seeing sin like this helps us to battle. As the old hymn goes, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. And finally, seeing sin like this shows us the world's greatest problem, the deserved problem of God's righteous wrath, and it compels us to proclaim. Remember, this is all motivating the Christians to support Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Run then and work, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. It's better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. Let's pray together. Some words from Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Father God, thank you that you are holy and just and perfectly righteous and that you take sin seriously. Thank you uh, that in your grace and your mercy... There is full atonement, though, at the cross. We pray that seeing sin with greater clarity would give us a greater gratitude for Jesus, that we would run to him once again, that we would have greater resolve to battle sin and an increased motivation to proclaim your righteousness to an unrighteous world. In Jesus' name and for your glory we pray. Amen.